Titus chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 are our scripture reading this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn there to the New Testament book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And you'll find that on page 845, page 845, 845 of your church Bibles, and that's the navy blue Bible that's in the pouch in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own and uh, you would like one, please take it as our gift today. Uh, We'll be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, page 845 in your church Bibles. Uh, The verses are also up on the screen as well. The Apostle Paul writes to his uh, associate or lieutenant uh, in the faith, Titus. Titus is um, pastoring on the island of Crete, so Paul has an important letter, message for Titus to pass on to these churches on the island of Crete. And verse 7 says, So that, having been justified, that word means forgiven or acquitted, So that having been justified by his grace, that's Jesus' grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Titus chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. The word of the Lord. You know, there's a big difference between wanting something and getting something. And we're going to find that out Friday. Right? Our little ones. (laughs) You know, they've been wanting something, dreaming about it and scheming about it. And it's just, you know, been these fantasies in their little minds about what might be underneath that tree and, and, and then, you know, by the grace of mom and dad, they get that something and, and 30 minutes later they play with the boxes. There's a big difference between wanting something and getting something. And of course, this is true for grown-ups too, Right? difference between wanting something and getting something. We wanted that job or you know, we wanted that possession, that home. We even wanted that relationship. We wanted that degree. We wanted it and worked for it. And, and you know, by an act of grace, then we receive it. We got it. And And we learn what our children learn. There's a difference between wanting something and getting something. And and it's almost like that we, you know, we we 
ascribe this, this power over this, you know, this particular gift, these gifts which come to us beneath the trees. We, 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 give, we give this, this, this power over our lives and our direction and our thoughts. And if we could just have this and open it, then, then forever we wouldn't need anything else. Ever, ever. And we know better, don't we? We know better in here. We're pretty wise in here. And I'm pretty wise, you know, in here. But then life happens, and well, sometimes we just forget that. We just forget that. Because, you know, gifts, you know, you know, gifts become obsolete. I mean, think about electronic gifts or computer gifts. I mean, they just, you know, they get given, and then they get obsolete, and they just don't quite satisfy. And it begs the question, doesn't it? Is there such a gift that could ever satisfy? I mean, ever satisfy. Is there? Is there such a gift? Is there, is there a gift that could satisfy more than I could ever dream of? Is there a gift that, that if, if I were to receive this gift, if I were to have and possess this gift, that why, why if, if I could get this particular gift, that it would, it would more than satisfy, it would, it would go beyond my dreams or my imagination, and it would, it would appreciate in value over time, and it would improve, and it would last forever. It would really and truly be the one gift that if I could truly receive, it could fill everything there is to fill within me. Does such a gift exist? And the verses that we just read this morning tell us loudly, yes, there is such a gift. Did you see it? Did you see it in these verses? Easy to miss. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 tell us about the best Christmas gift that we could ever receive. The gift that does in fact appreciate in value and improve with time. The gift that lasts eternally. It is the gift, you see it, verse 7, the gift of being an heir of God. The gift of being an heir of God. And that's why we have Christmas. Jesus Christ came so that we might become heirs of God. Christmas appeared when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Why? So that we might become heirs of God. And I just want to talk about that word this morning. Heir. To be an heir. What is, what is that? It's a word picture, it's a metaphor, but what is it? What, and and what, did it, what did it mean in Paul's day to be an heir? We have our own understanding of that. Was that Paul's understanding? I want to talk about that. And not only do I want to talk about what does it mean to be an heir, but what does it mean to be an heir of God? My goodness. Now we get into something really rich. And, and if I am, in fact, an heir of God, well, how does that affect my life. I mean, how does that affect the way I relate to people, my family? How does that affect 
what goes on outside of this room, outside of this church facility, okay? So, you know, what is an heir? What, what's the significance of being an heir of God? And, and then, now what? What? So what? Now what? That's, that's where we're going today as we think about this best, greatest, most wonderful gift that we can ever receive. The gift of being an heir of God. Well, question number one is just basically this. What is an heir, right? What is an heir? We kind of know what that word's about. Being an heir has to do with inheritance. You know, Sarah and I, when we traveled last summer, before we went to Turkey, we had our will updated. And you talk about wills, then you talk about, you know, inheritance, and you talk about, you know, uh, uh, having heirs, and talk about my sons, Benjamin and Brandon, you know, being our heirs, and, you know, but technically, technically, according to our laws today in the United States, and it's very important that we get this because so often we read a word heir like what we read in Titus chapter 3, and we read that word and we just kind of assume our culture and our history back into biblical history, and they may be two different things. In our country, why, to be an heir... Technically, technically, I don't have any heirs. And and technically, every one of you, you don't have an heir. You don't. You say, how do you know, Randy? You're not a lawyer. You're just a preacher. I can read. (laughs) I'm not a lawyer, but I can read. And in our country, maybe you didn't know this. This is just some free legal advice, huh? In our country, it's just a kind of a staple of American law, which is based on English law and Scottish law, and it's this principle, it's this maxim, no one is heir of the living. No one. No one is heir of the living. Um, That's just the way it works in our country and in our culture. Uh, The the only way you know for sure if you are an heir is if your ancestor dies, and then you've got to read the will. Then you know whether or not you're an heir. Because in our system, no one is an heir of the living. Now, that's a very important to, to remember that that, that. that in our country, in our system, death is, the death of someone else is what identified who the heir was. All right? It's very important. And often then we come to the scripture with that understanding of the word heir, and then we look at this word heir in Titus chapter 3, verse 7, and what we need to understand is that to be an heir in first century Rome, in the Roman Empire, where the apostle Paul was a citizen of the empire, that's not the way it worked. In the Roman Empire, if you were a child, you were automatically an heir. It wasn't death that made you an heir in the Roman Empire. It was birth. Birth is what made you an heir. Furthermore, in the Roman Empire, according to the eyes of the law in first century Rome, according to the eyes of the law in first century Rome, Rome made no distinction between the father and the son. In the eyes of Rome, they were the same person. The ancestor and the heir, the parent and the child, they were the same person in first century Rome. Now, in America, you know, I mean, I'm Randy, and my dad is 
Robert Cecil Boltinghouse, and my brother is Richard Lynn Boltinghouse, and my oldest brother is Robert Cecil Boltinghouse Jr., and we're all these different individuals, and we kind of pay attention because we're into individual and and kind of self-determination in our country. We, We kind of pay attention to the first name, but in the Roman Empire, it was like Boltinghouse Inc., there was this, there's this personality called Boltinghouse Inc. And, and the patriarch of Boltinghouse Inc. had controlling interests, but for all practical purposes, in the eyes of the law, there was just, there, it was just one person, Boltinghouse Inc., and the patriarch, the father, happened to have controlling interests, so much so that well, in our, in our culture, in our country, you know, if my dad's, you know, when my father dies, if his debts exceed his assets, then I can have the estate declared bankrupt and I can kind of walk away, all right? Sort of, in our country. In first century Rome, Bolting House Inc., Rome said, no, that's not how it works. If your father's debts exceed father's assets, I'm still on the hook for that. Because in the eyes of Rome, there was no distinction, none whatsoever. How, could, how else could I put it? Um, uh, I could put it this way. How many presidents has the United States had? How many presidents has the United States had? How many presidents? I mean, you say, is this a trick question? Well, uh, yeah, it is, but I want to make a point. Okay, work with me here. Okay, listen, uh, the answer to every question here at Windsor Road is not always Jesus, right? So, <laughs> so how, many, how many presidents has the United States had? 44. That's the right answer, not Jesus to that one. It's 44. 44. And you would, be, I mean, you would expect an American to say that. But a Roman would not say that. A Roman would say that the United States has had one president occupied by 44 different individuals. It's just a slight difference of nuance in it. But it's, that's just kind of because, you see, because in the eyes of Roman law, this very same person. Furthermore, an heir in the Roman Empire was always under the control the controlling interest of the ancestor or the patriarch, always. The assets, the property, the relationship. In other words, what I'm saying is, in the Roman Empire, there was no coming of age. There was no, you know, in our country, it's like you turn 18, then you become an, an adult in the eyes of the law. None of that in the Roman Empire. No way. No, no, you only, you only, you only, came of age after the patriarch died, you see. But until then, whether you're 8, 18, or 48, if the patriarch is alive, you're subject to the patriarch in terms of the authority. An heir was under the authority of the ancestor until the death of the ancestor. And, and, and furthermore, it made no difference whether the heir was by natural birth or by adoption. No difference whatsoever. In the eyes of the law in the Roman Empire, it was the same. Natural birth, adoption, that made you an heir. What I'm trying to say is that in Rome, birth, not death, made one an heir. 
Do you understand what I just said? Great. You may be saying, okay, why the 10-minute History Channel lesson? Yes, that's what I want you to say. Because, because if, once you understand that, then you can go back to Titus chapter 3, verse 4, and read these beautiful verses. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, birth, the new birth. The new birth, the, the, the being born again. There's that word birth. And that's why then rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, having been experienced the new birth, we might become heirs. Birth heirs. They're tied together. Oh, that's why I get so excited about this term heir. Tying it in with birth, you see. The new birth is what makes us an heir of God. And of course, when we talk about being an heir and we talk about inheritance, we're also talking about adoption, aren't we? Because because in adoption, in the first century, that means that I'm done with my old life. I'm done with my old family. I have been taken out of my old family. I've been taken out of the old state. The old state. I'm taken out of the old state of Titus chapter 3, verse 3. I'm taken out of the Titus 3, 3 family, and I have been placed into the family of God, a new family. And all of the old debts are canceled. All the old liabilities are gone. And I get to start a brand new new life because God has adopted me and I've become his child. And because he's adopted me and I've become his child, I am an heir because to be a child of God automatically makes me an heir of God. And that means I have a new leader, a new leader. And since God will never die, I always, always follow the leadership of my heavenly father. You see, Christianity does not promise you the emancipation from all and any other master. No, no. Christianity, what Christianity promises is a better master, a better father. And and because I'm an heir of God, it means that, that I, you know, now I belong to the family called Jesus, Inc. Jesus, Inc. And what's true of Jesus now becomes true of me. And I, when God sees me, he doesn't see me. He sees me in Jesus. And to him it's the same. And I get Jesus' righteousness. And I get Jesus' love. And I get Jesus' grace. And I get Jesus' holiness. And I get Jesus' purity. We, we, something we get when we belong to the family called Jesus, Inc., and, and I even get some of Jesus' gifts, gifts of the Spirit of Christ. And, and many of you, you know what I'm talking about here because if you belong to Jesus, you, you're practicing some of these gifts, these gifts that meet needs and serve out of love. 
because I'm in Christ. I get all of Christ, and you know what? Jesus gets all of me. He gets all, what do I have to contribute to the family? Oh, I contribute Titus 3, verse 3. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I contribute. I contribute foolishness, disobedience, deception, and being enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That's my contribution right there. And that was put upon Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. It's it's the best swap we're ever going to get. I get Jesus A, and he gets my F, and I belong to the family. You say, why would he do that? Well, verse 4 says, because of the kindness and love of God our Savior. And what this means practically, church family, is that any time I go through hardship or suffering or difficulty, any time I go through suffering or difficult or hardship, belonging to this family called Jesus Inc., it doesn't mean that it's because God is mad at me or angry with me. No, no. No, because I belong to his family. I'm his heir. When I go through hardship and when I, when I go through trials and when I go through challenges and difficulties, it's not because God is angry with me. It's because God is allowing me to experience life in order that ultimately I might be more like Jesus. You see, Romans 8, verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Back to the first century Rome principle, right? If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And you see, just as Jesus experienced Good Friday, He also experienced Resurrection Sunday. And if we are in the family of Jesus, Inc., we're going to experience Good Friday so that ultimately we will experience Resurrection Sunday. And that's why Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, when the time had fully come, that's Christmas, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because we are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts and the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now that phrase, Abba, Father, if you could just try to capture the most intimate phrase that you could say to a father. And, and mingle that with the most respectful phrase that you could say to a father. That mingling of total intimacy and total respect is all wrapped up in that word, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. You see, Paul is saying, that the greatest gift that we'll ever receive is not going to be found under this tree. It's going to be found beneath the tree of the cross upon which Jesus was crucified. And so, Christmas is not about working and striving and winning. Christmas is about receiving and possessing and taking and savoring and rejoicing. That's why 
being an heir of God is the best gift you'll ever receive. But I fear, church family, that our culture, who refuses to believe that message, still continues to tease us and bait us with stuff that it offers. And more and more and more, it continues to say, no, you need to take, you need to take these earthbound gifts. That's what's really going to satisfy you. John Ortberg is a pastor and author, and he wrote about this thing in an article recently. And this is what he said. He said, what is behind our endless and growing fascination with celebrities? I mean, isn't it because we suspect they have the life we want? The good life? As if there's this, this, this gift here underneath the street called the good life, and so they have it, and we, we think because they have it, we want it? Ortberg says, we often associate the good life with access to money or pleasure or success or attractiveness. He says, there was a magazine actually called The Good Life. And based on its ads, The Good Life could be pursued primarily by fine dining and weight reduction. Which is a paradox when you think about it. He says the pursuit of the good life generally involves assets which we believe celebrities possess. And then he says this. But then when there's a mess involving a celebrity, we're fascinated because we, well, because often we think that if we had all the good stuff the celebrity had, we would be smarter. We would be the one to be able to enjoy the good life. And Ortberg continues, he says, you know, we, we live in the tension between our desire to have the good life and our desire to be good people. And this tension displays itself every time we open up a newspaper and we compare the advertisements with the obituaries. Because the advertisements tell us, here's how to have great hair, great teeth, great clothes, great food, great sex, great cars, and great bodies. But the obituaries never, ever say, he had great hair, great teeth, great clothes, Great, great food, great sex, great cars, and a great body. They never say that. We want to be good people, but we're willing to give it up to have the good life. We want what the advertisements offer, but we also want what the obituaries say. And then Nordberg says, this is why The news, the good news of Jesus never goes away, ever. Because the good news of Christmas is that the best gift you're ever going to get is not going to be found under that tree, but the tree of the cross. And, and And the good news that I'm just telling you about first came to Cretans. Those Cretans. Those Cretans. 
They didn't live in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, you know. They were a pretty rough bunch, right? These Cretans. Even they could become heirs of God. And, and when what's, what's the Lord saying here? He's saying that God is no respecter of race or nationality. He's saying that his heirs are global. They come from every part of the world, from every race, from every nation, from every tribe. That's what he's saying. Furthermore, he's saying, and don't forget this, verse 7, that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. In other words, what God began one day, when, you know, when we experience the bath of rebirth and renewal, God's not finished with us. And he's not finished with you. And he's not done yet. But one day he will be done. And one day, the promise is that God will finally make us into, and I love this phrase, sinless creatures in deathless bodies. Wow. What will the new heavens and the new earth look like when it is, when it is uh, inhabited with, with sinless creatures in deathless bodies? I mean, well, think about what's going on in our world right now. The economy, the environment, terrorism, poverty. Is this planet not broken? But can you fathom a day when no one acts out of anger or terror or greed? In every decision, every motive, every action, every word, every thought, every intention is true and pure and selfless and Christ-like. And furthermore, this goes on forever and ever. And, And it gets deeper and richer and it continues to improve. I mean... See, that's what we're talking about in terms of being an heir of God. And this is the promise. This is the gift that keeps giving. And when the Bible talks about hope, the Bible's not talking about wishful thinking. The Bible's talking about confidence. This is our confidence. I like how Christian philosopher Peter Kreeft put it. Suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, your Titus 3-3 kind of life, suppose that despite everything, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless in singing? I mean, what can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? Why, to fear the worst earthly loss would be like a billionaire fearing the loss of a penny. And less than that, a scratch on a penny. Now, that's the kind of confidence that the Apostle Paul is speaking of when he says that we are heirs having the hope having the confidence of eternal life. And that's why, that's why being an heir of God is the very best gift you're ever going to get, ever. So now what? Hmm? Now what? Well, keep reading. Paul tells us, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. You know, how does this affect my life here and now? Well, 
Paul says that heirs of God devote themselves to doing good. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, those heirs of God, those who have trusted in God, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. See, see, they don't do good in order to become heirs of God. They are heirs of God, and this is just what heirs of God do. They just do good. So they know what to pay attention to. And then Paul says, heirs of God know what to avoid. And that's what's behind verses 9 and 10 and 11. Heirs of God, avoid and ignore the trivial, petty minutia. Oh, but avoid foolish controversies. And, and, and yes, he's talking about you know, foolish religious controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, but could he not say the same about past issues and relationships? You want to get fixed on something, and so then soon resentment and bitterness comes in. And Paul's pretty strong about this. He says, look, you, you, warn, you warn the petty, minutia person. Warn them, warn them once, then warn them a second time, then after that, have nothing to do with them. Right? Heirs of God devote themselves to doing good, and then they devote themselves to knowing what to ignore and avoid. And that's the now what. That's the now what. Church family, I received an email uh, Sunday afternoon, last Sunday afternoon, uh, by uh, uh, just a dear sister in our church family, who I believe uh, what I'm about to read embodies the best of both of these, devoting, devoting oneself to good and avoiding, avoiding the trivial and the bitterness of the minutia. Let me just read this to you. Hi, Randy. As you might imagine, I was incredibly moved by Gary Wackerman's testimony today. Remember, Gary came last week, and, and uh, we are uh, talking about Celebrate Recovery and a new ministry that's launching, and uh, Gary gave such a moving faith story. For Gary and his family, his story seems headed in the direction of a happy ending. However, I am sure that I am not alone in experiencing a different path. I would like our family at Windsor Road to know that even when the happy ending is a little more obscure, God's faithfulness and his redemptive power is still alive and working in our lives. Not every Gary heeds the warning or responds to the love sent to them in the way or the timing of Gary's miraculous experience. In my circumstance... God still showed up. He was always in touch and in tune with what was going on in our lives. Jesus is my Savior and Redeemer. He is working out the details of our sanctification on a daily basis. And the journey will not be over until we are called home to Him. There is hope in the seeming hopeless situation. And I urge all of my brothers and sisters to hold on tightly to what seems to be just the memory of faith. I had completely given up, stopped praying, because what I could see was not working. There's so much bitterness and suffering. And when I was without hope, God reached down and offered me a hand up. And it was now my time to make the decision of a lifetime and move toward Him and the love He was offering 
or be caught in the pit of despair. Fortunately, I chose the truth. And even though I was still as blind as ever, there was a renewed sense of the possibilities that were ahead. Christian platitudes were of no value to me then, but the undeniable love of Christ was my new compass. Help me in my unbelief became words of life. And in so many ways, I have heard God whisper, I see you. Mandy, I hope you will share what I have to say here. And if ever I can be of service to the desperate and brokenhearted, I will be happy to do so. In Christ's love, Bernie Peake. Now, church, you have to be an heir of God. You have to be an heir of God to be able to write those kinds of words. Because you see, what happens is, is I mean, God does this. He, you know, he takes us through a process of stripping away all of our dependency upon, you know, the earthbound gifts so that we will ultimately lean on and trust and put our entire hope and confidence in his gift that comes at the foot of the tree. And we're all here. All of us are. Now, uh, the Gary Wackerlands and the Bernie Peaks are here. We've got some of you right now that you are experiencing Resurrection Sunday in your life. It's a season of Resurrection Sunday. And we praise God for that. And we also have folks who are experiencing a season of Good Friday. And we praise God for that. We praise God for that. We're a Hebrews chapter 11 church. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew writer takes us through kind of a hall of faith. And some of those faith-filled heroes, why they were mothers who received back their sons from the dead, but some were sawed in two because the world was not worthy of them. We're all here. And we're all here because we know that death or life, Good Friday or Resurrection Sunday, Jesus Christ is the best gift we're ever going to receive. Amen. And it all came about because of his kindness and love. The kindness and love that sent him to earth on that Christmas day so that he could die on the cross, so that we could become his heirs, so that we could experience the new birth. And the new birth and the constant renewing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, so that being a part of Jesus, Inc., we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. And that is the best Christmas gift ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us so much and for renewing us, 
cleansing us and giving us new birth and, and, and putting us through life's experiences, life's Good Fridays and life's Resurrection Sundays. Thank you for both. And thank you that you give us communion, symbols of your death, burial, and resurrection. Symbols that remind us that Jesus was your only begotten son, but by grace through faith in him, we might be your adopted children, and you treat us like your son, your natural-born son. There's no distinction in your eyes. And that's why we are heirs of you and co-heirs with your son. Thank you. We love you. Amen.